Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. So, everyone, everyone out there in listener land, um, who likes ants, I think, is today's today's fun question. Uh, also, uh, the additional fun question I think we should ask is, who likes uh, uh, comedy Australian accents, which we will not be doing at any point <laughs> in today's episode? That's, that's, that's one of the accents that I can't even do poorly in an attempt to fake it. And I only ever start doing it accidentally when I'm attempting to do a mock British accent. So yeah, we will, uh, we will forego this today. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But uh, this is going to be a very ant-heavy episode. Yeah, lots of ants, lots of, lots of Australian legal case history and legal theory. Mm-hmm. Yep, the two absolutely. things that you come to our show for. Yeah. Uh, ants... <laughs> And Australian legal case histories. Um, I feel like we should probably explain this. I feel like we I, I, honestly, I think we should just cut it here. This is the full episode. The rest, the rest is just—it's going to be three hours of of like a mic placed inside of an ant colony. Yeah, just a gentle, just a gentle kind of like scurrying past the microphone, and just and, and like faintly, faintly like 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 an ASMR going from ear to ear is going to be like an Australian Supreme Court judge reading a verdict. For those of you who don't know, um, <laughs> I, f- I feel like I'm going to have to contextualize this a little bit. So, like, uh, something that happened, if you support the show on Patreon, which you can do at patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, uh, we have a channel just on our Discord server for suggestions, uh, which we do keep track of. And um, occasionally people suggest movies which probably would not strike the 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 kind of first time viewer on paper at least as being a kind of quote unquote horror movie um but we are always up for the challenge of expanding the definition of what horror mo- horror cinema is and what it can do and um and that's and that's what today's film is about uh, and i i don't know about you ash but like i think sometimes Certain horror movies have Ash vibes. Certain horror movies have John vibes, uh, and that's like a Venn diagram of all hor- <laughs> of all horror cinema. Um, and uh, to be honest, I think today's film is a film that kind of sits in the en- intersection of those two circles. Would you agree? I I would say that this is one of those blessed films that that caters caters to every audience no no movie the movie going public would not be disappointed with today's selection um we are talking we are talking about uh honestly maybe of an hv favorite the the incredible film director Werner herzog um and we are talking about the 1984 film where the green ants dream uh probably probably not a very well-known bit of of the Herzog filmography. So it is with, with it is with great pleasure uh, that I invite um, invite Ash to tell me, you, and everybody else listening what today's film is all about. The events as depicted in this film never occurred, but they have happened. Real people, real politics. 
and real events intersect with each other on a reel of film. This leads us to an uncomfortable truth inherent in all retellings. Any depiction of events would have included editing, a fictionalization through orchestration, redactions, focalizations, and stylistic choices shift the meaning and understanding of even events captured in the moments that they happen. To understand reality is to read it. Herzog's Where the Green Ants Dream depicts the Australian Supreme Court case Milliprim v. Nimpalco Party Limited through a fictitious story but includes real Aboriginal activists like Wanjuk Merica, and funds from the show helped Merica purchase a part of his family's ancestral lands. This film emerges as something more than a dramatization, something more real than real. Even memory edits, cuts, and stylizes events in its own way. Where then do we find this film in the landscape between fact and fiction? The dreaming of the green ants isn't real, but their dreams do have a place in our reality. Their dreams do constitute our reality. Join us as we discuss Herzog's Where the Green Ants Dream. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Ants, 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 ants. All right. Well, well then, let us begin, as we always must, by... uh, Carefully going through the door that is labeled the formalism zone. I like how we've like just started kind of kind of like doing like some impromptu acapella instead of me having to plug in that, that pre pre made effect. <laughs> we're just trying to say, th- save you work in the edit. That's that's all we're I doing it, there, right? That's all we're doing. It adds it adds something unique to every episode. You never know. You never know how how we're gonna do it. Uh. Well, let's let us let's begin with a question, and which is, what is this film? Is this is this fiction? And what does it Ooh. what does it mean? What does it mean to even ask that question in the first place? So, when this movie was released in Australia, it, it was kind of heavily panned by critics. Right, uh, uh, this movie did not do well in the Australian market because a lot of Australians and a lot of Australian cultural commentators and film critics saw this movie as being, you know, quote unquote, anti-Australian government. You know, it's, it, it, they, they saw it as depicting the Australian government in a poor light, siding with a mining company, kind of di- downplaying and patronizing the needs, the wants, and and the the rightful goals of the Aboriginal people. And I think that th- this is kind of where the crux of this lies, right? Like Her- Herzog is maybe most famous as a documentarian. Mm-hmm. And you can see those skills at play even when he's making a, a fiction film, right? You can, you can see the eye of the documentarian at work here. And I think the thing that gets really troubling with this movie is, is to try and figure out if this is fictitious, in quotes, to, to try and answer that question we, we first have to call into question if everything from documentaries to our own memories are quote-unquote fictitious to certain extents. And the uncomfortable answer, answer to that is, yeah, probably, right? The, mm-hmm. the, great, the great kind of, um, like, it, wasn't, it, wasn't it Tarkovsky who talked about this, that the great innovation of, of cinema is editing? Right is making making literally a cut in time, and so like the whole point of documentary is its denaturalization of our construction of what history itself is. Right, history we think of is as this kind of coherent story 
But no, stories are told and stories are constructed, right? Which in a sense means that stories have tellers. Stories are are fictions, right? Um, mm-hmm. So yes, this is a fiction, but it's fictional in in as much as history itself or, or hegemonic history is fictional. Um, and I think this is why people responded so negatively to it, right? It's it is. Uh, it has actors. It it has all the landmarks of, but what it what it does is it gets too close to the to the border. It gets too close to the to the uh, taxonomic categories of what we take cinema to be, right? Some people go, oh, yeah, it's a little too close to being to being actually quote unquote true. But the thing is, it is true. It is true. It has, mm-hmm. you know, this is Herzog's famous thing about transcendent truth, right? He's he he deliberately sets out to kind of question these these generic uh, and taxonomic categories of how we actually understand images in front of us. And I think this is this has arguably only become more important since this movie came out. You know, like like this this movie was released at a point in kind of like the the history of the hegemony of empire where people widely accepted a collective idea of some base level of truth. And since, since the Trump presidency, since Brexit, like that's a huge crack has formed in that. I mean, right. I think we're going to, we'll get into this more, but like, I couldn't agree more, which is like the uncomfortable idea of like, what do you mean by colonialism? Right. And, and, it is best understood as a kind of horror story because you do history from the, from the ground up, from the bottom up. I mean, this is what people like Eric Hobsbawm, CLR James, uh, EP Thompson all set out to do in various ways, which is like to, to stop taking as simply just given the world as, as, as it appears, right. The naturalization of, in this case, the dispossession of Aboriginal and Indigenous peoples' land rights, right? People go, well, that's just the way yeah. the world is. And, it, and like stuff like this is valuable in as much as it goes, actually, no, this is not just the way the world is. This is the result of choices. This is the result of a, of a particular system functioning entirely as it was meant to. Yeah, and, and like speaking of choices and, and the way the world is, right, like there, there is something comforting in, in the idea of, oh, if we could only show people facts, you know, if, if, if only we could show the people the truth, they would believe us, you know, like, oh, these, these people who don't, who, the flat earth, flat earth people, right, people who, who believe in something patently ridiculous, you know, like, oh, if only if only there was a sufficient dearth of evidence that we could show them the the spherical nature of the thing on which we all yeah. live. But what where the Green Ants Dream stresses, right? One of the things that makes us so uncomfortable is that it's pointing in the direction of humans are not creatures of fact and logic. You know, we're also not wholly beholden to a flurry of emotions and storytelling and narrative. We we straddle an uncomfortable space with one foot in each grave. We we need compelling stories and narratives and fictionalization, but we also need the facts that go with that. And I think where the Green Ad Stream 
weaves those together in a way that more potently expresses what went on kind of in and around events like that court case and similar court cases and events in essentially all over the world better than if Herzog would have done a flat documentary. Yeah, totally. Like there could have been a documentary here. There could have been a, like a, um, and like the mm-hmm. whole point is facts are not, um, th- this is the limit of it, of kind of like empiricism, right? You know, this is, this is what, this is what our geologist character is told. You, you white men are lost, right? You you don't get mm-hmm. it, <laughs> and it's 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 the the complete limitation of this idea that you can get at political issues, and this is fundamentally a political issue in a in a fundamentally rationalist manner, right? Um, you always run up against the insufficiency of individual epistemology. Um. And what you take to be just the natural state of things is actually an intensely policed, violently policed and violently enforced mechanism of control. And I think one of the the best areas of the film to kind of highlight how Herzog handles this is the green ants and their Mm -hmm. dreaming. Um, So there are no there are no dreaming green ants, not in like an objective scientific way but in like uh there there is no aboriginal cultural belief in the dreaming of green ants creating the world that's a that's a fiction that was made for the movie um like and i think that that is in and of itself extremely useful because if i think if herzog would have used a real world belief that that was tied into the land to try and explain why the land is so important to a group of people that 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 would have we would have been able to fold that into kind of the colonialist narrative that those kind of belief systems get folded into. Oh, that's a folk tradition, and it's meant to symbolize the land's fertility, or you know, like like oh, it's like they believe this because of a harvest cycle, or like 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 the, the, the this kind of overly scientific way of absorbing in a, a, a gentle group of people's belief about the world in which they live. But by by kind of you know crashing head on into into that wall, right? By creating something that feels plausible, but nevertheless isn't, we can't we can't just just disregard it, right? We're forced to be to be dealing with something that's a little stickier, a little mm. weirder. Well, well, like maybe what we should do before we get into the kind of like weirdness of this, and there is plenty of weirdness to talk about <laughs> in in the best possible sense of the word, is maybe we should talk a little bit about. Uh, the quote-unquote factual history, like we both mentioned this a little bit, but maybe do you want to like do you want to maybe just kind of lay out what this court case is and and um, because the film is a fictionalization or a or an artistic sort of response, as it were, to this very famous Australian legal case from nineteen seventy one. Um, do you, do you want to maybe kind of like so what is that? So, so, so the case is, and, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing all of all, all of the things in today's episode will probably be pronounced wrong <laughs> by me. Um, but it's Milliprem versus Nabalco Party Limited. This is also known as the Gove Land Rights case uh, because it was related to the Gove Peninsula and the Northern Territory of Australia. Um, it was a very influential Aboriginal land rights case. Uh, the, the decision came down to then Justice Richard Blackburn against the Yongu 
claimants uh, who were trying to get their land back. Um, essentially, the, what the ruling ultimately came down to is that the ruling recognized British law when Australia was first colonized by the British as being the kind of legal cornerstone of Australian politics rather than Aboriginal claims mm-hmm. to land. And, and this has had massive repercussions since. And that's, that's, a, that's a quick oversimplification of the court case. And uh, this, um, it was uh, the, Nabalco were a uh, mining operation and what they were interested in was bauxite mining. So um, mm-hmm. uh, there are a few changes made from the actual court case, but lots of this film is actually um, very reflective of the actual court case. Um, and again, what, it would have been very easy to just make a documentary, right? To make a kind of piece of reportage. But I actually think that when something is is historicized, it's historicized within a kind of dominant epistemological framework. Um, if you make something which is supposed to be a kind of imaginative, ficti- quote-unquote, fictitious work, it allows for there to be more space in which you can interrogate the assumptions of that dominant episteme, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I, I suppose people might uh, reasonably kind of watch this and just go, well, why didn't Herzog just make a documentary? Yeah, I, I, and I think that that's one of the biggest questions that we have when we're dealing with where the green ants dream. Because we have, we have one of the world's foremost documentarians at work <laughs> in this documentary. But I think that in, in a lot of respects, like what Herzog documents here are the the lives, the emotions, the feelings, like, you know, it's, it's a documentary that attempts to document something that can't be documented in a way. And I think that that's, that's the power of this kind of fictionalization in this case, because one, one of the things in, in the Gove land rights case was, uh, so the, the court, all, one of the things that they decided was that even though the Aboriginal people had a historic claim to the land, Right, that that although they had used the land and lived on it s- since you know forever, essentially, you know, like that wasn't enough. Right, they they had no deeds, right, no titles, no histories, no borders, no boundaries on the land that that could be easily discerned by the court. And I think that 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 part of the case highlights a lot of the strain that we're dealing with here, right? Um, because you've got this kind of documentary urge to reduce everything to sets of facts that are easily demarcated and and understood and granular. And then, and then you've got lived experience of events, which contains those elements, but is so much more. And I think this is why the language of cinema is so useful, right? The, the idea of there being like a documentary as a, as a cinematic form has its own stylistic and generic conventions. Um, and there are a couple of ways in which this film actually kind of cuts against those conventions, like embraces its own kind of filmicness, um, which maybe we should talk about before we wrap up talking about the kind of formal elements. Um, the, the the first one I want to talk mm-hmm. about is like, this uses a lot of music in very interesting ways. Um, it uses quite a lot of, uh, I think it's uh, Siegfried and Wagner. I do believe uh, so. And it also yes. uses a lot of didgeridoo music, um, often diegetically, like within the scene. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of the European or German music is used non-diegetically. It's used as score. Uh, and I guess it's just kind of interesting to think about, what do you think about how this film uses music? So so what I think is really interesting is is that we, we have like this, the, the opening sequence of the movie is we're seeing all these landscapes scored with this kind of like sweeping operatic music. And then that, that immediately cuts into... Uh, scenes of like mining and like just grating mining noise. And and I think it would be, there's a compelling reading right there that like, oh, the landscape is serene and natural and therefore has this beautiful music um, that, that is despoiled by mining. But I think that there's another reading inside that that's weirder and a little more compelling for me. And that's that, that operatic music is, has a colonial presence to it, right? It, it, it is a Western operatic tradition overlaid on Aboriginal land. And where does that lead? That leads to the mining and destruction yeah, it's, of it's that. Yeah, it's literally land. the soundtrack of colonization. Mm-hmm. Hell yes. Yeah, exactly. What were your thoughts on kind of the, this music? Um, <laughs> oh my God, this movie is no, use I, of music. I couldn't agree more, actually. And I think it deliberately creates a uh, a, a, a kind of... A, a, a dualism between the, the the diegetic and the non-diegetic, right? A lot of the, this activity is done in the name of a certain kind of um, colonial project, which has as part of it a certain ontology, a certain view on uh, possession, a certain view on property. So, like, like the signification mm-hmm. of of the opera uh, is is intensely bound up with dispossession, right? Because you're put into the perspective of the of the indigenous people of the country, right? You so like that sound is not a cult it's not the sound of culture, it's the sound of destruction. Mm-hmm. And I I guess this kind of ties in more broadly to what we might call the sort of like the visual language of how uh, Australia and specifically the Australian outback is represented. And this, this I think it's really interesting, right? And it also ties into the music as well, right? Because the didgeridoo and the sound of the didgeridoo is is ubiquitous with with the landscape of Australia. You know, how, how many times in television and in cinema uh, have we cut to just anything Australian? And, and what signifies the presence of Australia better than a music cue from a didgeridoo? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. In, in a lot of filmic ways you know and a lot of like the the musical language of cinema the, the didgeridoo isn't really an instrument it's not really a source of music it's it's meant to signify the presence of australia and typically that's a, a heavily colonized australia right there'll be like a, a you know like we'll, we'll cut to a skyline of sydney and then to make sure we know it's sydney you'll hear a little didgeridoo yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. what i think this movie does th- that i really like is it showcases like the didgeridoo also has has a reputation of being a kind of like very one note instrument capable of very little um but i think that this movie works to to counter that right we we see the didgeridoo isn't used to signify the presence of australia in in big big quotes there when i say australia um and sorry if you hear a bunch of horns in the background right now. There's a massive commu- two-day community parade in my neighborhood right now, so it's nothing but like people <laughs> honking horns and stuff. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting, right, is that this this reintegrates the didgeridoo back to where it comes from. It's an Aboriginal instrument, right? 
you know, when we it's we we see characters playing the didgeridoo sitting together, right? You know, you know we we hear a much uh, broader range of what the didgeridoo is capable of as an instrument and the kind of music that it plays. That I think like we don't usually get in cinema, right? Because in in terms of cinema, in terms of the soundscapes that we hear, there, there's there's like the didgeridoo is closer to a sound effect than it is an instrument or music. Which I think has like like this is again this movie kind of troubling these colonialist overtones because now we're forced to reintegrate the the didgeridoo music and instrument back into its proper setting. Yes, absolutely. There's a, there's an additional thing I want to kind of bring up here, which is like, um, probably the way in which we think about. Uh, there's a really interesting kind of like another tension that this film sets up in its cinematic language which is um lots of lots of the mining and lots of like a, a lot of the white australian characters are always depicted in motion right always doing something whereas a lot of those scenes especially the scenes with the dig- uh, which with the didgeridoo or um like where you see the kind of community there's a there's a real stillness to the photography to to how the camera moves mm-hmm. to how people are presented um, and we'll get into this more when we talk about time, but it's, I think, necessarily about how these two kind of groups are presented as relating to Australia itself. So, like, the real kind mm-hmm. of, um, the real kind of highlight of this for me is when they go and visit, they go and visit the mining company's offices, like, in Sydney or in, like, a big city, and there's this kind of, like, like it's this hive of activity, whereas it, it, in in the outback and you know in in the desert, there's this uh, sense of stillness and kind of integration. This integration between subjects and objects, between between mm-hmm. person and place, um, which I think is really, I think is actually really powerful and often quite beautifully shot. Um, and I think this ties into like what does it what does it mean to present a place? You know, is is a place a background to activity? Or is a place and the people who live there and with that place a kind of like symbiotic relationship that can only be presented? You can never present the motion honestly, so it has to be presented kind of as a almost as a portrait. Ooh, ooh, ooh! That is damn good. I really like that, and I, I think that. So for me, one of the interesting things that, that's heavily related to this that goes on here is kind of like when we when we think of the outback and again, in big quotes here, right? Like when we think of like, you know, the sticks of Australia, Mad Max comes to mind, right? You know, like like it is it is a place like rich with this kind of like visual language because of how the history of cinema has formed. This is what the apocalypse looks like. And I think that one of the great things that's done here is is like to, to exactly what you were saying, right? Like this, the, the, this really reinterprets and grounds these spaces. It really like tilts and twists and changes things, you know, from from this from a formalistic standpoint, from the standpoint of understanding how, like, you know, again, in, in big quotes, Australia is interpreted through kind of the the cinematic lens. Yeah, you have this idea of like 
well, the apocalypse, it's apocalyptic. It's full of cars. It's this like the petro, the, 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 the petro apocalypse, or you have something like Baz Luhrmann's like epic of Australian history, but it's like, no, um, a lot of Australia here is this place, which is, um, incredibly still requires, it requires patience and a particular philosophical and political positioning to actually understand properly. And it's like one one of the things that really like, because I've never been to Australia, right? Like I don't have much experience. (laughs) And so a lot of my like visual knowledge of Australia comes from movies, you know, like comes like, like the most of Australia I've seen comes from apocalypse cinema, you know, like maybe a few Nat Geo specials thrown in there, maybe a book or two, but like. This movie kind of like made me integrate a lot of things that I wouldn't have when when I conjure the the kind of wilderness of Australia in my mind. I I wouldn't usually have conjured in like like ideas of endurance and the stability you're talking about and the slowness that you're talking about. You you, you know like in this movie like there's a scene in this movie where. uh, so some of our main characters go into a local uh, grocery store. Oh then, yes, yeah. I really, yeah. I really want to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Go on. Uh, so there's there's a group of um, they're, 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 they're the guys walking through the grocery store, right? And um, kind, kind of our, our protagonist is one of the agents of this mining company, and and his kind of journey through the movie is he's having he's having kind of like a struggle of emotion and a struggle of place. Because, you know, he wants the mining company to succeed because that means he succeeds and he does well. And he's just not very critical about these things, right? He's just your average Joe. But the more he becomes in contact with the Aboriginal people, the more he starts to recognize that there are other issues going on here. There are other people with other goals and they just might be right. Um, and, and part of the movie, he goes into like a local grocery store and there's a group of Aboriginal people just sitting in the middle of the aisle on, on the ground, you know, ki- kind of meditating or daydreaming. And the the owner of the grocery store kind of gives us this this bit of exposition where like like that, that group of Aboriginal people had been going to that plot of land to daydream since time immemorial because that's where children come from the the according according to the story he tells the father must first dream of the child before they can bring it into existence and so they have to come back to that spot and when they built the grocery store they just started going to that same spot and the manager then starts joking about how that oh it's great for business because because the you know the people will come in to see them do this you know and they'll just have to occasionally move one when somebody wants to get the paper towels thereby or whatever and yeah. I think I think like that is that is a phenomenal way of looking at like there's a vision of apocalypse in Australia that that isn't the kind of like hot rod leather daddies of the apocalypse. Yeah, the, like it's it's an incredible quick scene because like I can't think of a better visual metaphor than literally for colonialism that literally building a supermarket mm-hmm. around around the sacred site of those who have lived on the land for 60,000 years right like uh and, and i i really do, when we when we when we move into our kind of discourse i really do want to talk about dreaming as well as such a kind of interesting um oh yeah theme in this so spoiler alert but we're 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 talking uh, uh we're going to talk about friend of the show 
uh, and and noted cultural commentator on Australian political history, Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Yes, yes, absolutely, we are. But maybe we can we can wrap up our formalism zone here, and then, given that you have you have dropped HPL into this, perhaps we can kind of start. It. We can start with the kind of big question of like, why of all the things that we can talk about, why are we talking about this? <laughs> like, basically, I suppose I suppose the kind of obvious question for anyone listening to this is like, in what sense are we talking about horror cinema here? So. So HPL, more like, how does my podcast keep talking about Lovecraft? <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. I do this to me. <laughs> if, you've, if you've been here for anything longer than like five episodes, you know that uh, the, the, the formula goes like, oh, yeah, this reminds me of an HP Lovecraft thing. And then three seconds later, I'm like, oh, damn it. I did it again. <laughs> It happened again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, m- m- much much like an eldritch god slowly slowly driving a man insane while he sits alone in his apartment in Providence. I'm slowly being driven insane by the gaunt shadow of H.P. Lovecraft. Um so okay. All right. Fuck. Fuck my life, fuck all our lives. Let's go to the dream realm for a second. So, uh Lovecraft writes this story called The Shadow Out of Time. Um I think it's one of his most interesting stories. I don't think it's talked about enough. I think everybody, everybody no, nobody wants to talk about the great race of Yith. The Yithians, mm, chef's kiss, Lovecraft, some of his finest. Um, so, so the great race of Yith work by psychically projecting them, their, their minds through space and time into the bodies of new hosts. And this is usually like a, a scientific expedition. They'll, they'll just body snatch you for a while to learn, how did humans live in the 1980s? Let's body snatch a few. And they do this all over the galaxy, all throughout time. Um, and, and this the story is all about dreaming, you know. And it's heavily set and heavily focused on Australia's Great Sandy Desert, because that's according to the story where the Great Race of Yith used to live. And our, our main character used to be possessed by a member of the Great Race, and now he's kind of working his way, reintegrating his memories of being, because it's not, it's not a possession, it's a body swap. So your, your consciousness goes into the body of a Yithian while their consciousness is in your body. And, and so he's, he's trying to integrate these, these dreams that he's having of, of um, the, the, you know, like the great writs of Yith and their cities and being a Yithian for so many years with his own memories of like what he did in those times while uh, th- this alien had control over his body summary of that story aside before i just keep going on like the act of dreaming is cosmic and terrifying right like like there 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 is something agential about dreams but agential in a way that we do not have access to the dreams come to us we we don't ask for them and this movie i think and this is something that like John, you brought up before we started recording, like is a piece of cosmic horror. And I think it's a piece of cosmic horror that fits in with Lovecraft's the shadow out of time. And it fits in with these green ants are dreaming. And while they're dreaming, that's what keeps the world alive. That they're, they're, they're the solipsist, right? Like we're, we're all just in the dream of some ants 
in some part of the desert in some part of Australia. And for me, I think a lot of people get distracted in cosmic horror because they think it's about like big space squids and how spoopy they are and how they can get you if, if you don't know the right chance. But really, cosmic horror is about recognizing that humans... I, I think it's it's oversimplified to take Lovecraft's stance that it's about how small and unimportant humans are. But it's a recognition... It's recognizing the fact that humans are just a part of a much broader system. And we're a part that hasn't always been here and won't always be here. You know... So much of this life that we live, even the parts that we think we know very well, we do not even begin to understand the surface mechanics of. We we delude ourselves with our cleverness. And you we, we, we could we could mock these Aboriginal people and be like, oh, there's no there's no green ants here. They don't dream the world into existence. The world is held together by physics and, and the sciences. But the, the, the people in this movie are protesting the destruction of these green ants because if you destroy the green ants, you destroy the world. And in a very serious way, what, what has mining accomplished? Largely the destruction of the world in which we live. And that's, that's as true from Australia as it is to Appalachia. And I also think, to, to, to add to everything you've said, with which I agree entirely, is like, <laughs> like we have to consider, like, perspective is so important here, right? The, the, who is who is living through the horror? Who who like the very the, the ground that you stand on is something that gets taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Like there there are holes in the earth which open up beneath your feet. There are tunnels down there where uh, strange people kind of move looking for something. Like I I've been reading rereading C.L.R. James's book The Black Jacobins on the Haitian Revolution mm-hmm. and like. I, I think there's something incredibly powerful in understanding um like colonialism is a horror story. Right? It's a it's a it's it, it is a it is a horror story. And what's horrifying is not necessarily in this in this case is not necessarily the kind of intersubjective violence. It's like these great forces which have just appeared and are completely beyond your control and are taking things away from you which are kind of integral to who you are right mm-hmm. Th- this is why it's a horror story and the best example of this is is a character that gets called the 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 mute mm-hmm. uh so and on it like on, like this this is it's a kind of heartbreaking moment in the film oh, right yeah. when you kind of realize this because this is the point right colonial it's is the question of scale it's the scale of things which make this truly cosmic. So uh, the mute is an Aboriginal elder who is the the storykeeper of of their tribe. Uh, you know, the storyteller, those who one of the people who kind of hold the the oral and cultural history of their community. Um, everyone else who speaks the language that they speak is dead. Right? Mm-hmm. They 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 literally have no one to talk to anymore um and it's it's this moment it's it's a story that's told in court um where they're surprised that this person that's called the mute can actually can actually talk it's like well it's not that they can't talk it's that they have no one to talk to anymore right they are in a kind of cosmological terms they're completely alone in a way that's almost 
like it's it's Lovecraftian. This idea of being so com- yeah. so completely isolated, um, and it's that's the moment for me where I was like, no, I get this. I get this as a horror movie now. Oh, oh, absolutely! Like, the, the, so the scene where 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 like the, the mute storyteller guy, it, you know, he he gets he gets up on the podium and starts talking to the judge, and and like there there is such pain in his eyes, like like the way he's talking has like a cadence of such great profundity, and and nothing, no one can understand what he says, no one will ever be able to, you know, he's he's. It, He's imprisoned and and dying in a way that, thank God, almost no one in human history has ever had to experience. Like like that is you're absolutely right that that is horrific and cosmic. Yeah, in it, its scale, it's like say that's the moment where I was like, I it kind of clicked to me. I was like, this is a horror movie, right? This is this like mm-hmm. the, the kind of sheer loneliness of being so kind of cosmologically trapped within yourself. You're quite right. He's dead. He's like, because if you can't talk, if you can't pass on the story, right, then what are you, right? One one could imagine a series of events in which this man is no longer made to be alone. You know, like with, with enough dedication and enough resources, some communicative gap could have been breached, right? Some Some linguistic bridge could have been built back, mm. you know? But instead, like... This this man is turned into a living tomb for the stories of his entire people. These these are the last one to carry these things, and he will carry them silently to his death, no matter how loud he speaks. Yeah, and and like the judge's total disregard for that, and and like we'll, we'll get we'll get to talking about the judge later because I think the judge is one of the most important characters in this, especially from like a horror perspective in terms of how the judge demonstrates cruelty. Yeah, well, maybe we should maybe we should talk about that. Maybe we should kind of get onto that, which is like the uh, the Aboriginal people of the area bring bring a lawsuit against the mining company, um, basically looking for the legal enforcement of their right to control the land itself. <coughs> and just as in the nineteen seventy one real world case, the judge finds for doesn't find for the plaintiff; they find for the defendant. Um, mm-hmm. what, what did you think about this? What do you think about this judge? So the judge, the judge, I think is an incredibly interesting character because the judge on, on a surface level is incredibly sympathetic for the plight of these Aboriginal people and what they're going through. Right. Um, so, so the, the prosecution, right. Um, the, the kind of, uh, lawyer that's meant to represent the mining interest is very hostile and he keeps trying to dismiss any kind of aboriginal evidence like at one point these people present a relic that we never really get to see as the audience but it's it's meant to be a relic that proves their relationship to the land um and and and, you know like the the lawyer for the mining company is like oh you can't it's it's just you can't bring that in here just dismiss it What, what evidence is that and the judge is like oh no there's precedent you should study your cases they can do this i'm fine with it and and so on a on a moral level, you know, on a very simple level, he seems amiable, perhaps even in support of these people and and in touch with what they're going through. He he's he's very permissive. But I think that that belies the deep cruelty of his character. Uh because even though he seems to be so allowing and and even at some times sympathetic, 
his, his decision is ultimately to strip them of everything. It's to effectively bring about their apocalypse. It, it is to, to turn them all into the mute, in a sense. Uh, entirely. And this is, a, this is the kind of bigger point about the law, right? Which is like, the law is often referred to as the kind of like impartial arbiter, right? The point at which decision can be made. Where you go, oh, how do we how do we solve the moral the moral problem can be subsumed to the legal system, but like so much of so much of um, so much of this film is about the ways in which those systems of thought are entirely incompatible, and the so called kind of impartiality of the law is really just another tool of domination, right? It's another way of like going well. What else can you do, right? You you tried, you know, we were we heard you in a court of law, but your systems of thought and systems of, of mm-hmm. like, they don't fit. So there's nothing else you can do. I guess you're just going to have to all die. Exactly. It, it's, it's that kind of, it, it is such a mocking, patronizing cruelty that the judge has. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, bring, bring your artifacts, tell your stories, but ultimately... You didn't file the right paperwork when England colonized this country 200 years ago and now you must die. And we don't recognize your not even not even your traditional history but your your entire uh kind of ontological mode of thought, right? Because mm-hmm. uh so much of it is bound up in like how do you deal with the dream? The dream is the place of uh there are, there are a couple of things which I think are really important which is like the dream is the place of like a certain philosophy of time. Because what does like the the capitalist clock mean in the outback? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What does that mean to sixty thousand years of oral history? Right, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, and also, the dream is the place of psychology. Right, it's the place where the mind is revealed in relation to the universe of which it is a part. Um, there's a strong uh, strain of what we would call kind of quote unquote panpsychism um, in mm-hmm. in Aboriginal cosmology. But I, I I'm not going to equate the two because it would be productive but i think that's the closest equivalent which is like there is no separation between self and and place right you are you are part of you are part of the kind of cosmic dream and this is so completely un it it doesn't integrate with the system of the law so the law just simply kind of dismisses it and goes well yeah yeah you know, we heard you what more do you want the the, the law has a very mechanistic effect right it sanitizes these cultural inputs you know oh you you can tell your aboriginal stories you you can present your case you can show your artifacts you can demonstrate yeah the mining company even say we'll build you a center for your artwork <laughs> yep yep yeah they, they they offer to build an educational center to to to, to build them some housing in a different site but it, it but Which, it is never oh, it, but it's never taken kind of seriously and the and the sort of the kind of mode of resistance is just a refusal, right? They they stand in front of the bulldozer and they will stay there even if the bulldozer threatens to run them over, right? Because mm-hmm. why would you recognize... Communication is almost impossible because your systems of thought and your systems of, of, of communication itself don't even recognize the, the essential kind of ontological commonalities between you. That, so, so, so that scene you just mentioned, right? There's a scene where one of the mining company employees is about to run over like all of all of the Aboriginal cast with a bulldozer and kill them, and he's he's ultimately only stopped by by our protagonist, our representative of this mining concern, 
And he stopped because that would create a lot of paperwork and legal problems for the mining company if if he were to kill them all. And, you know, like they, they debate for a moment about killing all of these people. And I, I think I think part of the horror there and kind of like this kind of like ontological problem that we're dealing with with this movie is that like these people are defending the continuity of existence. They are fighting against the apocalypse. And even if the the drive the operator of that bulldozer were to run them over and go to jail for the rest of his life, the mining company would keep mining. Yes. Yeah. Entirely. Entirely. Like it's just it's a different ontological game. The mining company is there to make profit for the board of directors and shareholders, and these people are there to prevent the apocalypse. You know, like they they have incompatible goals and directions. You can't. You can't you can't uh, staunch the bleed of the end of time with like a, a, an educational center in the heart of some random town. No, of course not. It's impossible. So, like, as we as we sort of, I think we're coming into about an hour or so. Should we um, talk about how this film ends? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you what do you think? What do you think about the end of the movie? Uh, the ending is the ending is super interesting. So. At a certain point, they're on an airfield, and one of the um, Aboriginal elders says, wants a plane. They want a plane that they see. Mm. And the mining company obtains this plane and asks them to build a runway for it. Um, there's a... And what they want is they want the ability to... The the ants go, go to the east, which is where the dreaming happens. Um, and so what they want is they, they they want this plane. And at the end, the two of them fly. Uh uh they disappear, you know, they're they 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 vanish off off into the east. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's a deeply kind of mournful ending. Um, but at the same time, there's a sort of inescapable kind of hope to it because like there is an escape. There is there is it's it's a kind of mythic one, a sort of like symbolic a yes. symbolic one. But there is an escape, and there is a sort of self mythologizing. You can, you become part of the kind of cosmic dream again. What What about you? What do you think? So, so I think this is this is really interesting, right? Because there's oh, there's so much to talk about in this film. It's it's really phenomenal. But like, so that plane, so the mining company is is acquiescing to a bunch of random demands that that, that the people have. Because, like, you know, if the mining company buys them a small town somewhere, that's going to be well below the cost of what the, the, the resources they'll be mining from the earth. Right? It's, it's simply a cost-benefit trade-off. The mining company buys them a plane, but in exchange, they get access to all this land. And what I think is really interesting about the, the plane disappearing is I think you're absolutely right. Like, they, 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 they ascend into some kind of mythology, and that, that's this kind of, like, it's this fearic hope that I think we have to deal with a lot when when you're like left or even progressive or you're fighting for any kind of betterment of the world in which we live, whether that's environmental or human or technological, like the the vic- victories are hollow, but they're still victories. You know, wins are fearic, but they're still wins. And I think that's kind of what we have to confront at the end of this, you know, because they they ascend into the status of something mythical. They become part 
of their own mythology and legends, right? Like we, we, we get a line where one of the, the kind of Australian military uh, guys is like, oh, there was hardly enough fuel in that plane to go 17 kilometers and we can't find them anywhere. You know, they, they should have crashed in the outback. But somehow they managed to just vanish, just get away somewhere. Yeah. And I think that, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a very powerful ending. Well, there's one other aspect that I, I feel we should talk about, uh, which is a kind of minor plot point, really, or a minor sort of plot line. Do you want to talk about the dog? Yeah. Okay, so I know you really wanted to talk about the dog in this movie. What were your thoughts? Okay, so like... About our little puppy. So, so our geologist who works for the mining company, we're introduced to them talking to an older woman who has lost their dog. Their dog has gone missing in the mines. Um, and they basically want this lady to go away because trying to find the dog just isn't mm-hmm. going to happen. Uh, and they keep they keep highlighting all of the ways it wouldn't be cost effective and it wouldn't be, it's not reasonable. And, and the woman keeps insisting upon the point, well, you can do this. You can do this, right? You, they go, oh, we'd need to dr- drill like, you know, a hundred hole uh, monitoring holes to kind of see if we could hear where their footsteps were. And like, we'd have to send somebody. And the woman's like, well, you can totally do this, right? <laughs> you, you're able to, you're just choosing not to, which I think is a really important point. Uh, and then right at the end, you see this woman kind of waiting with an open bowl of dog food next to her feet. And you're waiting at one of the entrances to these mines. Um, and there's, mm-hmm. it's it's something really powerful, this idea of like actually it's almost a kind of like moral shaming of these people for like refusing to do what they're perfectly capable of doing simply because it wouldn't be cost effective, right? What do you think about this? So so the dog for me is, is really interesting because I think there's a lot going on here because on one level, like the geologist and the representatives of the mining company are so much more ready and willing to acquiesce and work with this old white woman who's lost her dog. Yes. Than they are with anyone from the indigenous communities. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're willing to send teams into the mines. Like they, 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 they do acquiesce to some of her needs. They let her just chill on the mining site waiting for her pup. And, and like, like they deal with her, like no one's trying to run her down with a bulldozer. Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I think that, that that's one very important thing to highlight about that. But I also think that it, it, it shows kind of, it's, it's a bit of a view into the cosmic nature of the destruction that we're looking at. You know, like the, the, the cosmic is never discreet. You know, like, like, like when, when Cthulhu breaks through into our reality, it's never just one or two sailors that are driven insane. It's a fundamental shift in all that can be known. You know, like like that that is the nature of the cosmic. It's everything. Right? There there is no limit. The limit is our perception. And I think that that's kind of what we're looking at here, because the destruction of the green ants is the apocalypse. It would not the apocalypse include old women losing their dogs. Yeah. You know, like 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 it's the it's this cold, unmoving cruelty of the business concern that is the mining interest. That makes that makes like Azathoth look like a warm and lighthearted. Pal. Yeah, I mean, what does what what does the colonial project want to do? What, wants to literally tear apart the earth, right? Like, isn't isn't like what what's what what's <laughs> what's scarier? This idea of like, oh no, the 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 big squid monster from outer space will come do it. But no, there's something that is that something that can just appear one day and can look almost human, but actually just wants to crack open the earth. 
and like take everything away from you. Uh, and and well, you know, yeah. and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you try and kind of like make the case that like, oh, well, you could do this in a good way. There's still this kind of like a genuinely cosmic horror at the core of it. And I think that like, you know, you know, uh, uh, just tweet this out. Lovecraft never predicted the consequences of industrialization. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think that like, you know, I, I just think I just think of the Appalachian Mountains and how there are there are whole chunks of that mountain range that are just like stripped ground rock pits now all for what exactly what was what was achieved by by destroying one of if not my pick for the most beautiful place on the planet you know at least out of all the ones that i have been to in person like what was gained what was won by these activities you know like in 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 kind of your 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 nuts and bolts cosmic horror some some goopy monster from the stars descends and drives a small town of people mad but like we've irreparably damaged the only place where humans can ever live for the rest of eternity so that some people could have some currency for a very short amount of time and that that makes every single cosmic horror monster just the most silly, trite, laughable little thing. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.